Well, welcome to uh, In Town Church. My name is Steve, and I'm glad that you were able to make your way through the closed-off streets and traffic to get here. Um, We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, it's been fitting that Luke uses the motif of a journey, because for most of the last several weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus is on this journey. And if you have a short attention span and you're kind of wondering, are we going to keep doing this series for years and years? Well, we arrive in Jerusalem this morning. So all of us that have been saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We're almost there. And this morning, we're really reaching a very critical and meaning-packed passage in Luke's gospel because, as I said, that journey motif is, is one that um, kind of consumes both of his books in the, the Christian canon. And so in the first book, in book one, Jesus keeps kind of narrowing in and journeying toward Jerusalem, drawing smaller circles towards his death. And then in book two, in the book of Acts, the church begins in Jerusalem and then begins to ripple out in through, into all of Israel and into all of the entire known world at the time. And so really what Luke is trying to get us to see is that the movement of the church is a centrifugal bounce from the centripetal movement of Jesus' death. We are narrowing in on everything that the church is. And so this morning, we've got our work cut out for us because we're going to be wading through layer upon layer of very deep richness that Luke has set up for us. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started together. This is the gospel reading. It's from Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, each week we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. And we say the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we close that prayer, we say to you, yours is the kingdom. And then so often, we go back out into the world to build our own kingdoms, to pretend that we are still on our own thrones, to pretend that you have not done anything for us. Would we be reminded this morning that you did not come to us in judgment and power and anger You did not come to us to war on us as a warlord. You came to us as a lowly, humble servant to overwhelm us with your mercy and grace. I ask that we would be overwhelmed by your love and your mercy again this morning. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. 
we're going to do two things this morning. We're going to first just sort of dig around the topsoil of this episode, and then uh, what we're going to go from there is to kind of dig a little bit deeper under the surface. So first what we're going to look at is the idea of this story as an acted parable, and then we're going to see that if the king's a certain way, the kingdom must also be that way. So as the king, so is the kingdom. We'll begin with an acted parable. Just so we're entirely clear, political conventions plus the 24-hour news cycle is enough to make me want to move to Siberia. And I don't even own a TV. This is just from what I hear from other people and what I see online every once in a while. I mean, we talk about every little detail of our political conventions, don't we? I know that some of you out there love to watch them. You might even love to hate watching them, but you still watch them, right? What were the speakers wearing? Who wasn't invited? Who spoke longer than they were supposed to? What did they say? What didn't they say? We will look for meaning in everything from the color of Michelle Obama's dress to the times when Ann Romney laughed in her speech to the volume of the music, the size of the conventions halls, and we have pundits that will do this for literally 24 hours a day, for day on end, just week after week, talking about all these different things, trying to find the meaning. And we do this because we know that we're able to figure out at least something about our potential leaders based on how they dress, who they hang out with, what they say, and what they leave unsaid. I was wondering to myself this week, what would it have been like if there was a 24-hour news cycle in Jerusalem as Jesus enters the city? I imagine the amount of speculation upon every detail would have been even greater than what we see with our own political campaigns. The potential Messiah entered the city today in a 74 Mercedes diesel, sparking outrage from the auto industry and the eco-conservatists, right? Jesus is not going to please any of the pundits in his crowd. And yet what I want us to see is that when I say that this is an acted parable, I don't mean to suggest that it's not historical, that it's not factual, and that it's not real. Rather, what I'd like us to see and what I think Luke has worked very, very hard to get us to see is that the actions of Jesus have, have meaning at a much deeper level than we often assume. And so just as we don't find it overly ludicrous to find meaning in our own political convention speeches, so I think we need to stop and see that there is a much deeper meaning here than anything that's happening in our own day. First of all, Jesus is entering Jerusalem as I alluded to earlier, for 10 chapters now, he has been making this journey. And as he's gone along, his message has gotten sharper and sharper and more pointed, and he keeps talking about his own death, and it keeps confusing even his closest disciples. But the journey to Jerusalem has really been happening for longer than just 10 chapters in Luke's gospel. Really, the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures has been a project of painting a composite picture of the Messiah. From the earliest chapters of Genesis, the human race has been waiting for a promised one, one who would be the offspring of Eve. And so as, as we see way back in the very beginning, as Adam and Eve begin to procreate and fill the earth with their offspring, we, we start to wait. We wonder, is this first son going to be the promised one, the one who's going to come? And every time, we're disappointed. As the narrative in the Old Testament begins to focus in on Abraham's family as the family through which this promised one will come, we start to wonder, is it going to be Isaac? Is it going to be the son that was born to Abraham in his old age? It's not him. Then we learn a couple generations down the line that, that there will be a royal line that will come out of Judah, one of Abraham's grandchildren. 
And as the painting continues to take shape, we see that this descendant of Judah will be called the Lion of Judah. He will be a royal king. And then David comes on the scene. Here he is from the tribe of Judah, and he is the conqueror of Jerusalem. He sets up Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, as his capital, as the dwelling place of the king of God's people. And then God makes another very specific covenant with David, and he says, one of your descendants is going to sit on this throne forever. And so we begin to wonder, is the next one to come going to finally be the one? And Solomon is born, and his glory surpasses anything Israel had ever seen before. Is it him? Solomon dies. Solomon's glory fades. The kingdom divides. And the hope of this son of David, who will sit upon the throne for all time, begins to flicker. The rest of the Old Testament is just picturing generation after generation after generation of failed kings and broken dreams, and God's people are eventually finally removed from the land. Jerusalem itself is captured by a foreign pagan army. After many years, the people are allowed to come back, but they're still under the rule of that foreign army. Jerusalem's throne is, for all intents and purposes, occupied. But everything, everything rests on the Messiah getting to Jerusalem and setting up his kingdom. Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God, the city of David. So if you'll allow me, spoiler alert, to to spoil the end of the entire human story, the reason that the, the, the New Testament writers talk about the end of time in the way they do is because Jerusalem is that centerpiece for God's plan when the, when the Messiah was going to come. And so when they talk about the end of all things, when heaven comes down and is united with earth and God's reign finally is complete and unmasked over all things, it's pictured as the new Jerusalem, the new city of peace, the new city of God, where the son of David, where David's greater son will rule forever. And so... What we can say right away is that the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem happens once in the life of the world. Anything we can say about it will be an understatement right off the bat. And what does Jesus do? This is his big moment. This is when he really unveils everything that he's about and he enters the city riding the colt of a donkey. Now, this serves to fulfill our Old Testament reading, as you heard earlier, but it's more than just Jesus walking around with a checklist of Old Testament prophetic passages about himself, like some cosmic scavenger hunt, making sure that he gets all the stuff that he's supposed to, okay? The point is much deeper than that. The point is that Jesus' concepts about kingship are drastically different than the crowds, and very often they're drastically different than our own. Jerusalem was still under political siege For a long-awaited king is going to make headway in setting up his kingship, he needs to at least be riding a horse. Donkey-riding warriors only conquer windmills. But Jesus is not a warlord. He's a king of peace, coming to the city of peace, riding on a peaceful beast of burden. And then even the donkey's back, as well as the road that he walks on, are are softened by the cloaks of the people. Everything about the scene is a scene of peace. And the people begin to shout and sing a psalm over David, a psalm that reflected this hope that a Davidic son would come to Jerusalem and be anointed king. But Luke gives us a very interesting detail that's really easy to miss. But when you start to bookend it with things that he said earlier, you start to understand how he's setting up this crowd. In the beginning of his gospel, you Christmas fans will remember this. He records the angels at the birth of Jesus saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Now, 
So many chapters and years later, the people are singing over Jesus, glory to God in the highest and peace in heaven. The people are all for peace, but they need a king who is willing to get there, even if it means going through war to get there. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but one of the things that is going to be very crucial for us to realize, especially in the coming weeks as we wrap up uh, this Luke series, is that Jesus refuses to engage in the world's methods and means to achieve his own purposes. Jesus refuses to engage in the world's methods and means to achieve his own ends. We'll look at that more in a second. But first, I'd like us to see that Luke sets up for us in this account three types of people, and we've seen that Luke likes to use threes a lot. In this story, there's the close disciples, the larger crowd of followers, and then the Pharisees. Now, in this story alone, we don't really see much difference between those first two groups of the very close-knit disciples and then kind of the larger crowd of people that are following Jesus. But in the next few weeks, we're going to see them emerge as completely two different sets of people. And we'll see that true disciples will be those who are willing to toss away their preconceived ideas about who Jesus is and what his kingdom should look like and really actually submit their own desires and ideas to his kingdom vision. Whereas the larger crowd, the crowd that is now chanting his praises, is eventually going to start chanting for his murder. The difference is that this larger crowd that turns on Jesus in an instant is that they are unwilling to do away with their platform. They're unwilling to do away with their desires, their kingdom vision, their definition for who the Messiah should be. In a few weeks, we'll see that when the crowds realize that Jesus is not going to overpower Rome, he's not going to raise up an army and have some military victory, they turn on him. They want nothing to do with such a loser who would give up his life under the power of the people that they hate. The third group, the Pharisees, are really just plain old unbelievers. They refuse to consider the idea that Jesus may actually be who he claims to be. The crowds, dim-witted as they may be, at least are willing to consider that Jesus might be the son of David. He might be the Messiah. They, they may have the wrong idea of what that means, but at least they're, they're looking at the mighty acts that he's doing and they're saying, this could be our guy And the irony is that the Pharisees of all people should have been the ones to see that as Jesus is going about doing these mighty acts, he is reenacting the exodus of God's people from Egypt. He's the new Moses, feeding people, healing people, calming storms, all of these things that the scriptures told them the Messiah would do. And yet the very people that studied the scriptures the most refuse to believe that it's him. And they say, stop your disciples from saying these blasphemous things. The Pharisees understood all too clearly, that Jesus identified himself as Israel's Messiah and Israel's God, and they wanted to kill him for it. Jesus responds to the Pharisees by echoing what John the Baptist had already told them. God can use stones to tell the truth. But it's even more than that, and I really appreciate this because every once in a while, Jesus gets kind of a not-so-subtle jab at people, and he's basically telling these Pharisees that stones are less dim-witted than they are. Basically, what he's telling them to their face is that the religious leaders of this community are essentially dumb as a box of hair. But it's even more than that. When God made his covenant with the people, as he, as he brought them out of Egypt and said, I'm going to be your God, will you be my people? And they all say, yes, yes, we'll follow you. He makes a covenant with them and he calls heaven and earth as witnesses of their covenant that day. 
And as the people were kind of miring in all of this self-congratulatory uh, sorts of things where they, they refused to come back to God in their hearts, the prophets would be sent to them and they would remind them, heaven and earth are the witnesses of your covenant that you have been breaking. And one day, God is going to call them into the witness box, into the stand, and they will stand up and witness that you have broken this covenant and that God has remained faithful. The rocks themselves will cry out. The covenant witnesses have taken the stand. Now this is our, our attempt to capture this act as an acted parable. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and it's packed with meaning. We've got to understand that as the king, so the kingdom. Now odds are, the fact that you're even in church on a Sunday morning means that the majority of you probably fit into one of the first two categories, either close disciples or followers. And some of you may be thinking, well, I kind of feel like more of a Pharisee. I never thought I'd say this, but I don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And if that's the case, then let me just say up front, we're really glad that you're here. And we want you to keep kind of asking questions in our midst and allow us to interact with you in ways uh, that might be a little uncomfortable at times, but hopefully you can keep working out the claims that Jesus is making, the claims that we make about Jesus in our midst. And if that's you, if you're a person who, who says, I'm, I'm not even there yet, I don't, I don't really yet believe, then your steps are actually a little bit clearer, a little bit cleaner than the rest of ours because really your job, as I see it, as a pastor of the Christian church is to just keep wrestling with those claims. Keep talking with us. Talk with me afterwards. Keep coming here and, and really ask yourself what it means to have faith. And we would love to help you with that journey. Now, the rest of you, the rest of us, it's not quite as easy unfortunately. Are we close disciples or are we the crowds who want Jesus to give us what we think we need? And I think if most of us are honest with ourselves, we actually oscillate back and forth between both camps. And by we, I mean especially those of us who have been in church for a while, especially those of us who are in leadership in the church. All of us run the danger of co-opting Jesus for our own political vision, whether they're national, local, or congregational. And it's extremely easy for us to just go about doing things and assume that we're doing what he wants when far too often we're expecting him to do what we want. As I said before, we have got to realize that Jesus refuses to use the methods and means of this world to accomplish his ends. And as the king, so the kingdom. Friends, it will not do for us to declare a message about a king so backwards and humble that he rides a donkey into town it will not do for us to claim belief in a king so full of peace that he brings peace by absorbing violence rather than causing violence and then set up our structures in right-handed, worldly power sorts of ways. We cannot take seriously a gospel message that has at its center a king who gives up his claim on everything, including his own life, his own right to retaliation, without actually enacting his methods and means methods and means that are backwards and costly and absolutely baffling to a watching world. And this could be pie in the sky. We, we could keep it up there and just walk out and hope that we can figure out what it is that Jesus wants us to do. But really, this comes right down to the dinner table. Men, the way that you talk to your wife, you talk about your wife, the way that you treat your wife, does it have the fragrance of Jesus, the methods of Jesus at the center, or is the stink of self-justification always nearby? Parents, 
Do you shame and control your children until they meet a certain behavioral code? Or do you embody the message of a king who rode a donkey into death? Does the way that you engage in conversation on Facebook or the cafe or the dinner table reflect a king who embraced the poor and the rich and the diseased and the morally loose, the king who not only embraced hard-to-love people, but embraced their death as his own, your death as his own? How do you engage with the church, the church at large or this church specifically? Is this just another place where competing visions can duke it out and whoever screams the loudest or the longest wins? Is it a place to scramble and scrap for some sort of euphoric sense of self-fulfillment? Is this a place to have all your assumptions confirmed and never challenged? Whose kingdom is this really? That's the question we have to be asking ourselves. And virtually the rest of the entire New Testament deals at some level with this idea. If the king of the kingdom is the servant of all, then in this kingdom, there is no place to go but down. Friends, the church, the church has been called not just to act peacefully, not just to work for peace. The church is called to be a community of peace. So if you're a part of the church, then you have been born into peace. You have been united with the Prince of Peace and bringing the message of peace and reconciliation to a world at war, to a world of brokenness, is not something that you do. It's something that you are. You are God's message of peace to a world desperately in need of it. And until we allow this king, this humble king, to actually enter our hearts by his own methods, we will never be that people. And yet he has come and he is willing to give us his love and his mercy if we would just humble ourselves to accept it. Let's pray together. Jesus, your kingship is still confounding after 2,000 years of the church ruminating and thinking and enacting. And the beauty is that even as we get it wrong, you still work with people like us. You have humbled yourself and shown us your love in so many ways. And as we come to your table, would we taste of your love again? Would we see your humility? And would it work deeply down into our souls that we could become more like you? That we would be people in a kingdom following our king into death, into humility, and into love for a broken and dying world. We ask this in your name. Amen.